Hello and welcome to the Canola Watch podcast. My name is Jay Wetter. The following podcast was recorded at Canola Palooza in Lacombe, Alberta this year. The topic is sclerotinia stem rot management in canola. And my co-host today is... Uh, Sean Haney from Real Agriculture and Real Ag Radio. And our guests are... Luis Del Rio, I am a canola pathologist from North Dakota State University. And Kelly Turkington, I'm a plant pathologist here in Lacombe, Alberta with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. We'll get right into it. Here's the podcast recorded at Canola Palooza. The first question is, what's the, about the role of rotation? So we know rotation helps, uh, canola rotation helps with black leg management, helps with club root management. What about sclerotinia? Well, maybe I'll, I'll make a few comments about sort of the Western Canadian situation, and, and Louis can, can talk a bit more in terms of North Dakota. But I think in general, unfortunately, with sclerotinia stem rot, rotation is a, a strategy that doesn't tend to work uh, as well, and w- one of the reasons for that is is that the fungus uh, is quite ubiquitous, and it attacks most broadleaf crops that are grown, and and in fact most broadleaf weeds that are present within our fields. So, uh, moving away from canola, you may not necessarily move away from from a host, if, especially if you're growing a pulse crop or perhaps uh, if you're in an area where you're growing sunflowers or so on. But uh, the other issue is that you, if you have a lot of broad leaf weed problems, they can also uh, carry over the disease. So you get infection, production of sclerotia in those non-canola, either crops or weeds, and then carry over the fungus. Right, of, of course. And why wouldn't we have thought of that? We talk about the, the weeds that host clubroot, and it makes total sense that sclerotinia, with its broad host range, there'd be a bunch of weeds that are also contributing to the, you know, the, the, the bank. The, and the other, the other aspect is the fungus does move in the air. It's not as, as uh, it's not transported as, as long, over long distances as the rusts are. Uh, but within probably 250 meters to 500 meters of the source, that's where most of the spores are deposited. So certainly what's happening in your immediately adjacent field can serve as a risk. So your rotation may be actually quite good, but perhaps the field next to you, the rotations have been a bit tighter, maybe a longer history of, of more frequent broadleaf crop production. So you've built up the level of sclerotia, and as a consequence, you have spores being produced from that field that can easily blow over into adjacent fields. Are, are you at all worried, Kelly, that we've had such a dry bias this year that a lot of people are going to sort of not worry about some of these disease issues as we get further on down the line? Uh, it is a concern because uh, uh, the, it, it you know, may be a bit of out of sight, out of mind. And then if all of a sudden we start to see more moisture, like especially in our area recently, uh, things could come along uh, a little later on. And, and at a point where uh, there may not be enough time to act on the part of lining up uh, sprayer, fungicide, and so on. So, uh, depending on the disease in the year, certainly dry conditions can can be a producer's friend if they're not too dry, of course, to affect the crop. Uh, but things can change quite rapidly, and you know, you may have some localized thunder showers or weather systems that the overall area is dry, but you might have pockets where you've got an increased risk. Yeah, you, you actually want to be in a situation where you're at, at high risk for sclerotinia because it usually means you're also heading towards good yields. Absolutely. So what's good for the canola crop is also good for something like sclerotinia, unfortunately. It's a bit of a balance. Luis, gets, let's yeah. get the North Dakota or the U.S. perspective. It's, is it white mold or what do you call it in, in North Dakota, sclerotinia? Uh, 
typically white mold we refer to sclerotinia on dry beans uh, on soybeans and on uh, canola we call it the stem rot oh stem rot yeah, yeah. stem rot and yeah. is it the same situation in terms of rotation in North Dakota? Well, if you add soybeans in there, it may even be worse, where you've got a lot of crops that are hosts. Yeah, definitely incorporating another host into the rotation might actually backfire on you, right? Uh, instead of, of uh, trying to diminish the sclerotial bank in the soil, you are actually increasing it. Uh, however, on, on, on our experience with uh, canola, uh, we, we believe that there is some value to, to the crop rotation. Uh, it's hard to see. It's difficult to see. Many times the numbers don't, don't look like they, they are actually contributing, but makes sense from the point of view that when you see a, an organism that has been on the ground for three, four, five years, that organism, just like any other living thing, is aging, is dying. You know, and uh, even though they are still present there, even though they are still capable of producing spores, they are not going to be uh, spores that are fit or as fit as the ones produced by Sclerotia that was produced last year. Okay. You know, so there is some value into it, I, I, I believe. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. That the Sclerotia, after a year or two, start to lose their vitality. Yeah, and, and apparently that, that also applies for other crops. If you remember uh, some of the information that comes from... Uh, from Edmonton uh, in terms of club root you know, that indicate that club root after two years the populations are going down uh, by, by almost half you know, that, that tells you that there is something on, 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 on that area yeah. we hear the pitter-patter of rain on our roof and that my next question <laughs> is about risk factors for sclerotinia so, so let's set aside the rotation then I mean, moisture, is that the number one risk factor by far, or what, what are the risk factors? Uh, I would say certainly in Western Canada, moisture is probably the primary driving factor. The temperatures that we have normally are really not a, a barrier to the pathogen. So it really is, what are the moisture conditions like during uh, June when you have germination of the sclerotia to promote germination, production of apothecia, and so on, and then weather conditions in July that would be related to promoting conditions that favor infection. So from the ascospores that are growing on petals, from the petals and into the plant itself. So you need, you need moisture there, uh, high relative humidity in order for infection to occur. So certainly the weather is, is probably the trump card as far as, as risk factors, but certainly given the nature of sclerotinia and the fact that it's a monocyclic disease, you also need to keep in in mind the amount of inoculum that's floating around in the air as the crop is coming into flower. What, what about the density of the canopy? Because we, we've been a little bit drier this year. We yeah. have the potential for the can, canopy not to be quite as dense. It's, that's definitely an important uh, factor. We, you know, we did work in the 80s looking at things like uh, uh, stand density, so plant density. We didn't see strong a strong relationship between the amount of sclerotinia and the number of plants per meter squared. What was probably more important was simply the overall density of the crop in a unit volume of air. So, and, and probably the easiest way of, uh, I think, of for a producer to assess that is to look at yield potential. So if you're in that, nowadays it's 50, 60, 70 bushels per acre crop, you've, you've got a crop stand that is quite dense and it's going to favor uh, certainly significant disease development. 
on the on the rain and the and the cycle, if we look at the sort of the calendar progression of the disease, we've been dry, dry, dry in a lot of areas, not necessarily all all parts of the prairies, but. If you've been so dry where the disease risk would be almost zero, and then you get four inches of rain in a week that gets everything started up again, um, if, we're, if we're still a couple of weeks or, or so from, from the start of flowering, could we, like, is the sclerotinia risk right up, right up to max again with all that rain? Well, I don't, maybe I'll let Louis uh, answer first, and I can add, add to that. Yeah, I, I believe it would it would have a a positive impact on on disease development, and here is why. Um, studies have shown that when a sclerotium is about to to germinate to produce an apothecium, which eventually will produce ascospores, um, the entire process, that germination process, takes approximately three weeks under favorable conditions, moisture and appropriate temperature. Okay. So if you see these rains right now, four inches of rain is a lot, it's, it's a lot of, of water. Those soils are going to remain moist for quite some time. My take is that it's going to start triggering uh, carpogenic germination in three weeks. If the canola plants are flowering, ascospores will also be in the air produced by those, those spores. So, so yeah, it's... Uh, things are, are getting getting together. Is it possible, because it was so dry and then really, really wet really quickly in a lot of areas, that all the sclerotia are going to germinate all at once? So you get just a massive dump of spores when it would have maybe might have been metered out through the through the year. You, you will definitely see large numbers probably, but uh, not 100% of them will germinate. I mean, that's... Uh, Evolutionary, they, the, the organism has adapted to respond in different ways. You know, it's just the, the same way that we yeah. do. Some of us run faster than others, you know, and, and that's the nature of it. Some sclerotia are more uh, prone to respond to, to, to big rains faster than others. So you will always see some, some gradient. Yeah. How, how do we assess the risk then? Is there, is, we've, we've seen this that checklist from Sweden that's been around for quite a number of years mm. where, you know, five, 10, 15 points. If you got more than 40 points, you should spray, that kind of thing. Is that still relevant, Kelly? Um, you know, there's that checklist. If we go back to the 80s here in Alberta, you had Phil Thomas and the Ian Evans putting together a, a checklist too. Um, uh, probably in a broad perspective, it's a good way of, of getting a broad picture in terms of your risk. Uh, for a specific risk in a specific field, it, it may there may be other aspects that you need to consider but it's certainly uh probably a good initial way a quick way to to quickly assess risk and then you can look at perhaps other other uh methodologies or, or strategies to assess that risk how are the genetics working out because we, we had we had a whole push in the last five years for genetics to help us solve some of this problem where, how, how would you look back and evaluate that the last five years on that? Uh, well, uh, you know, my impression is that you know, initially some of the, the, the genetics that came out was probably reduced susceptibility, so not really probably true resistance. Uh, some of the lines actually had reduced yield potential, so 
that may have been an impact there may have been an impact simply on on canopy density but i think with the work that's being done by various breeding programs by the germplasm program in saskatoon and u of a and other locations uh we're seeing some some maybe what you could characterize as being actual resistance being incorporated uh the impression that i have is that even with these these so-called resistant varieties if the weather conditions are conducive and you have a lot of inoculum floating around you still need to actually put a fungicide on to 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 provide adequate protection you can't rely solely on resistance uh like you can let's say with something like stripe rust you choose a resistant variety and it mitigates your risk completely but you know louie i don't know in north dakota you may have some additional information on the resistance side of things uh, no, we we are basically in the same uh, in the same boat than you, and I agree completely with your comment that uh, even the most resistant commercial cultivar, under appropriate conditions, will still need the help of fungicides. Uh, there is not there is no such a thing as as immunity to sclerotinia on canola or any other uh, broadleaf crop that is typically a host for this pathogen. There is nothing. Let's, let's look at the, the potential yield loss from the pathogen. And you've seen, or you, you see canola fields that you think should yield 50 plus and they yield 20. Um, and it was perfect conditions for sclerotinia. Sclerotinia could very well have been the key reason. Is that an exaggeration or is it, could you face yield losses of that size? Well, I think that traditionally the rule of thumb, and that was something that Robin Morrell uh, at the University of Saskatchewan uh, developed there was some work out of the UK I think where they so the the rule of thumb is, is a yield percent yield loss is roughly 0.4 to 0.5 times the percent infected plants and that would be probably primarily lower stems main branches and so on upper canopy infections would have much less of an impact on yield so if you think 0.5%, so you get 50% uh, infection, you're going to have a 25% yield loss. And that could be actually even more if you have some significant lodging in the crop. But I don't know, Louis, what, what you see in North Dakota? Well, very much the same. Okay. Very much the same. We, we can, uh, on, on years that are very good for sclerotina infection, uh, you can easily have 30, 40% yield, yield reductions. Uh, so, so yeah, and, and you know, there is nothing else that, that we can we can do, especially when uh, direct damage by the pathogen gets compounded by uh, lodging of the plants. You know, when when that happens and, and, and you start having heavy rains in, in, in mid August, uh, it's almost impossible to manage that, that disease because the, the apothecia will start popping up under that thick canopy that just lodged and there is no way that you are going to de deliver any fungicide to it. So it could be very, very serious. A couple things. So on fungicide treatments, uh, so this year with, with as dry as it was in some areas, you get sort of an early emergence of some seeds and then when rains come two or three weeks later, <laughs> you get the next crop of, of seed emerging. And so we, it, if this extends into flowering, we could have a very long flowering window. Um, and if it stays moist, uh, the, the chances of a return on investment from a fungicide are, are that much better. So is, is that where you, would you just go for a split application, no doubt about it, Kelly? Or how would you approach uh, that's, when? Uh, that's an excellent question. I guess I would probably base it on, on the, the, 
you know what the main part of the crop the growth stage so let's say 80 percent of the crop is is moving into early bloom uh the rest of the the crop is is a bit behind you might want to target the majority of the field i I guess it becomes more complicated when you have uh you know more of an even distribution of later developing plants and earlier developing plants and in that situation if you have the weather conditions you have the inoculum loads uh maybe a split application might be something to consider and maybe hedging your bets a bit if you look at products that have a a range of of uh rates that you can use that maybe you can cut back a bit in your rate cut your cost in terms of the single application and that allows you to do that dual and not necessarily incur uh, sort of the full cost of, of two fungicide applications to, to that I, I would add that uh, one of the things that, that we consider also or at least what, uh, what we think growers are considering is uh, market prices market prices and yield potential if you if you have a field that is rather uneven in 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 emergence uh and it doesn't look like it's going to be a good yield there is probably something that a grower will decide at the end not to not to spray no matter what the risks you know because it may not be worth it you know so uh, when it comes to risk assessment and whether to spray what do you what are your thoughts on the pedal test or the the spore sensors that we're starting to see Spornado. <laughs> do they do they work are they useful do we know enough about them yet to put them into regular practice well, that's a good question uh, the area of pedal testing itself and plating pedals on agar is is not new that you know, there was a lot of work done in Saskatchewan in the 80s on that, and it, it is a useful tool to gauge the amount of inoculum floating around in the air. Uh, the, the challenge with it is that it usually takes five to seven days to read the results. So if you're looking at a timely assessment of inoculum load, that's going to be difficult with that test. Um, nowadays, we have the advent of molecular biology. We have the advent of quick tests, quantitative tests, and and now we can look at assessing spore load in the air using spore traps. Uh, Some of the spore traps tend to be more focused towards the research environment. They're very expensive. Uh, They can be uh, fairly finicky. They may not be very robust. They break down. Uh, And that could be a challenge to try and implement that in a commercial setting. Other spore traps, like the Spornado, for instance, are much simpler they're very easy to use uh, uh, with the spornino though it's not a quantitative trap so we're we're trying to develop some information uh in some trials we're we're, we're pairing the spornado with a rotorod quantitative sampler which isn't really something that um maybe a farmer would use but it, it's actually fairly robust and easy to use uh, so we've got it deployed at a number of sites across Canada. So we'll compare the Spornado results with that. And I think what we're hoping is that we'll, we'll develop a, a rule of thumb so that with the Spornado, you'd be able to look at the assessment, the amount of sclerotinia DNA. If it's not detected or if it's trace, I think right now you could use that as an indication that your risk in terms of inoculum load is low. It's if you start picking up DNA. Is that a lot of DNA? Does it, is it a moderate or high risk? So as we move forward, I think we're going to gather better information in terms of that. But, but certainly it's a, it's a simple technology, 
Uh, it's something that the turnaround can be a half a day to a day in terms of the, the results that the producer uh, gets. They can actually start trapping spores even before the crop starts to flower. So that gives them an indication of whether they need to go into the crop at an early growth stage or if the spore load is low, they can maybe keep monitoring and then it picks up, let's say, at full bloom, they can go in and, and target the risk at that stage. So I think there's a lot of uh, exciting potential, I would say. And I think, you know, as we see more innovative technology being developed, like the biosensor, for instance, or other sort of simple quantitative spore traps that are easily used by a consultant or a farmer themselves, that's, I think, really exciting. Yeah, I think anything to, to help with the decision. So if it's a spore trap that said, they're there in this quantity, and the moisture's there, spray. So, okay, good, I'm good to go. Sort of like a red, red light, green light. Yeah. Like, go or yep. no go. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree. And uh, there, there is definitely potential on, on these uh, technologies, on these types of, of uh, sampling procedures. Um, but we still need some, some additional research uh, be placed into it. Uh, things like, uh, okay, we are detecting spores right now in this field, um, but we happen to sample only this corner of the field. You know, what happens if we sample in the other corner? Or uh, what happens if we sample tomorrow? You know, and we don't find any spores. So all, the, all those things need to, be, need to be evaluated, need to be validated with proper field trials. So we are still, still a bit away from, from definitely sending sample something to be adopted right now so, so how much variance can we see in the spore loads on a day-to-day -day basis if I tested today versus tomorrow well as I had mentioned uh, to start with not all sclerotia are going to respond to moisture in the ground or conditions that uh, prone germination in the same way some will do it earlier faster than others at the same time uh, sclerotia load on the ground is never uniform in a field. It's, it's typically in patches. So you have this area very high densities, this area is blank, this area is also devoid of sclerotia. The other extreme has abundance of sclerotia and so on. You know, And the ability of that sclerotia to germinate is going to be not just depending on the genetics of the fungus, but also on the texture of the soil. Some parts of the soil will be elevated, some parts will be low areas, some parts will be at the shadow of trees. You know, those areas will have a, a, a soil moisture dynamics that are completely different than the others. So you will have these, these patches and that's how I think, I think the work that, that Kelly and, and, and Dr. Morrill did in the past on, on petals showed that precisely sampling was one of the difficult things to, to, to get. Mm -hmm. something that is representative of a field. You can sample here, right? And you could get good conclusions for this, but there are still 150 acres on the other corner that you didn't sample, and you're assuming the conditions are going to be the same. Not necessarily, I think. And, it, you know, certainly I think you can get a, a fair bit of variability from day to day. Uh, you know, if you look at sclerotinia in terms of... Um, Spore dispersal, sometimes if you have excessively wet conditions, you'll have droplets of rainfall forming on the top of the apothecia and they won't release spores into the air. So you may have uh, a day or two where the spore load in the air is very low simply because the, the apothecia can't release the spores into the air. Uh, if you look at 
conditions that favor dispersal. Typically, they're fairly clear and windy conditions that favor dispersal. So depending on what the weather is like, you could have a few days where it's quite windy, uh, relatively dry, and you have a lot of, of spore release and dispersal, and then a few days of fairly wet conditions, and that spore load might actually decrease. Let's just let's close off with your each of your thoughts on as we head into the sclerotinia management season. Um, what would be your your advice to farmers for this year in terms of management? Uh, you know, in, in terms of managing it with fungicides, it's probably one of the more difficult decisions that I you know. It's certainly uh, talking with crop consultants that, uh, and farmers themselves. The, the decision to spray or not to spray. Uh, for something like sclerotinia can be extremely difficult um, and you know I would say uh, one thing that one message I would I would I would leave is probably make sure that you maintain your water volumes don't cut your water volumes uh, the key thing that you want to be looking at I think is getting good penetration down into the crop canopy into the leaves the leaf axles the leaf bases those are the areas where the key infections are going to occur in terms of yield loss so um, don't just focus on petal coverage but make sure you try and get your chemical down into the crop canopy and certainly some of the research out of the UK uh, and their approach to, to spraying they're starting quite early actually even before flowering sort of about the yellow bud stage and the idea there is you get more coverage into the canopy and then under their conditions of course they're much higher risk so they may see uh, they may see uh, a need for uh, another application, typically at 50% bloom. But so those would be some some of the things to look at. What about nozzle selection or what in water volumes? Oh well, certainly uh, you know at, at least maintain that you know 40 liters per acre. Uh, and if you can try and bump that up, especially if all the indications are such that it's a higher risk. In terms of the nozzle type, I would probably leave that to the nozzle guy to give you some oh, clear advice. Talk to Tom Wolf. Okay, <laughs> fine. We will. If we have to. Luis, what would you be your recommendation for farmers heading into this year's Lertinia management season? Uh, yeah, the... Uh, are, are very similar to, to Kelly's. I mean, we, we cannot discard the possibility of having to use fungicides, not especially with this type of, of uh, recent weather events. Um, one thing that I could add to, to what Kelly mentioned was uh, probably that consider when making an application, try to, to hit the window when plants are between 20 and 40% bloom. That's uh, statistically, that's the portion of flowering when you will have the most casted petals falling on. The casted petals are uh, the main source of food for, uh, for ascospores, right? Past the full bloom, the number, the amounts of casted petals is going to be smaller and smaller and therefore the possibility that uh, infection takes place on those casted petals is lower and lower as well. So your best bet is going to be between 20 and 40 percent bloom. Do not, do not discard the, the 40 gallon recommendation because penetration of, of the compound to the lower parts of the canopy is key for control. 40 liters or 40? 40 liters, sorry. Yeah, yeah. 10, sorry. 10 gallons. <laughs> yeah. Confusing my mood. Good, well, thanks, guys. Yes, thank you. Thank you. 
A big thank you again to my co-host Sean Haney with Real Ag Radio and realagriculture.com. He provided all of the gear and did all the recording. I just had to show up. For more on nozzles for fungicide applications in broadleaf crops, there is an article at sprayers101.com. That's Tom Wolfe's website, as Sean alluded to. For more on the sclerotinia checklist, SAS Canola has an interactive version of it. You can find that in the research section at sascanola.com. And for lots more on sclerotinia stem rot management in canola, go to canolaencyclopedia.ca or canolawatch.org. You can find sclerotinia content in the disease sections at both sites. For Canola Watch, I'm Jay Wetter. Thanks for listening.